Well, thanks guys for having me and elders. Thank you for allowing me this opportunity. Um, Sorry, there we go. Opening my notes. Um, We are going to be in Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Psalm 51, uh, you may want to follow along. Um, Psalm 51 is a psalm written by David, King David, you know, one of the early kings of, of Israel. And so it's important for us to remember that before we get into this text, because again, some of us may know a lot about David, some of us may not, but nevertheless, I'm willing to bet if this is your first time in a church or if you've been attending church, you've probably heard of King David. King David is not an unfamiliar person. Uh, In fact, I mean, he comes up in pop culture all the time. In fact, just recently, just recently, this happened, uh, CBS Sports made a reference to King David, and you may or may not have noticed it, uh, those of you who are following the, match, uh, the March Madness tournament, uh, basketball, college basketball, I don't know who's big fans, I don't know who you are, but normally in the first round of this playoff tournament, there are games that are gimmies, right, that are supposed to go to the dominant team, the Goliaths, right, they're supposed to win, and then these tiny little schools that come out of nowhere uh, occasionally, and actually only have twice, a 16 seed has upset a number one seed. And this literally just happened a few days ago. Um, I don't even know the school. I don't even know where it is. It's um, losing my spot here. Here we are. A Fairly Dickinson University. Ever heard of it? Nope. Yeah, right. That's our David. Never heard of. And then he walks in and beats the big uh, Goliath Purdue University, which again, most of you probably have heard of Purdue University, so sports fans in the room. So nevertheless, David and the story of David and Goliath, maybe the story of King David and uh, the Ark of the Covenant, all these things are familiar to us. And as Christians, we even know one more piece of tid, uh, interesting facts, tidbit that we may, that our unsaved or unchurched uh, family members may not know. And that, of course, is what God said of David in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And it said this, that David uh, is a man after the very heart of God. Now, again, imagine that, that idea. You have, David, the heart of God. Now, that is an amazing thing to be called and to be said of someone I would have no doubt about. Yet, I want us to pause one moment yet again and dive deep into the life of David because there's one particular moment or moments, one could say, that sort of question, is David, King David, really, truly a man after God's own heart because we know the story of him and Bathsheba? Now, again, I don't want to make any assumptions that everyone's super familiar with the story. So let me give you a Reader's Digest version just to make sure we're all on the same page. So David is at home when the rest of the troops are off at war. Sort of a big no-no, but we'll get to that. So he's alone, and he then notices Bathsheba. And again, I always appreciate some word humor, and again, Bathsheba's bathing. Do with it what you will, that pun, but I appreciate it, at least in the English. So nevertheless, we have Bathsheba bathing. David notices her, and so he does, right, the really honorable thing and turns his eyes and stops looking. No, of course not. He goes, hey, who is that? Oh, that's some, okay, bring her to me. 
and they know one another, at least in the biblical sense, right? They have sexual relations. Yes, I'm sorry for using that term from here. No, I'm kidding. I think we could all handle it. But yes, they do. And so David is now slept with a woman who is not his wife. Surely a man after God's own heart. But David being again a man after God's own heart, maybe at this moment with pause, but no, instead he doesn't. He brings Bathsheba's husband home to try to get Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, to go home and do what a married couple normally does after they haven't seen each other for a long period of time, to try to cover up this act because in David and Bathsheba's night, she's found with child. So David is doing everything he can to now cover it up. And so he tries to convince Uriah, hey, Uriah, go home, sleep with your wife, you know, take some time off, enjoy yourself, right? You deserve it. You've been fighting. And Uriah goes, no, I won't do that. No, he's a man who is noble and um, willing to forsake his own pleasure because he knows his men are off fighting without him. And so Uriah won't budge. And he goes, nope, sorry, David, I won't do that. So then again, maybe now David would have a moment where maybe he should lean into changing his tactics, but instead he doubles down in his sin and now tries to get Uriah, or not tries, successfully gets Uriah drunk. Uriah then, they're thinking that once Uriah is now drunk, he will now go home. But again, once again, he says, no, I won't. I will not go enjoy this, what my men who are off at battle cannot partake in. And so David sort of probably must be wondering to himself, okay, how do I convince this guy I can't get him drunk? If he won't do it this way, okay, what am I going to do? Aha, I've got it. I will send a letter with him. And in that letter, I will give detailed plans to um, the leaders of the military conflict to basically charge in. And then at the last moment, tell everybody but Uriah that they're going to retreat. And so Uriah will be struck down dead. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah takes the message. They go into battle. They fight. Uriah doesn't get the memo because he's not supposed to. And he falls in this battle. So then once word eventually makes it back to Jerusalem, back to the holy city, David is able to then take Bathsheba as his wife. Then it makes it look like, oh, she conceived on their wedding night, which again, I'm sure people looking around doing the math probably are questioning that. But again, you, I don't know if, if I would ever question the king in that capacity, especially if you now know that the husband's dead and you know, it might start to look a little suspicious. So you might not want to call that out. But nevertheless, that's how this story plays out. And so at this very moment, this man after God's own heart has committed adultery, has gotten a man drunk to try to sway him in a particular way, has tried to then cover it up with murder, and then he now is left here thinking perhaps he's gotten away with his wicked deeds. But we have to now introduce a new character, and that is the prophet Nathan. And now again, those of us who are familiar with the story, we all know who Nathan is. But for those of you who may not know, Nathan is a prophet of God. He's a, he's a man who God used to speak the message of the truth of God to the people. And so he was a prophet. And during this time, during David's reign, and God speaks to him about David's 
affair about David's actions and about all the deception and all the lies. And so David tells this really cool story about a sheep and about a rich owner and a poor owner and all this stuff. And again, go to um, Samuel chapter two, if you want to uh, get this story, I highly recommend you check it out on your own. But nevertheless, Nathan tells this story and David's just irate. He's full of rage. He's full of justice. He's full of, come on, that guy's, oh man, they can't believe he did that. And, D- and then Nathan very calmly says, you are that man. And immediately David realizes the conviction of his sin, the weight of his sin, the error of his ways. And that is where we get Psalm 51, because it is Psalm 51 that David writes in response to everything that's transpired with Bathsheba and Nathan now and the aftermath. So without further ado, here we are finally at our text, the Psalm 51. And so if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read the first four verses because I feel like there's a few little chunks here that we're going to look at chunk at a time here. So Psalm 51 verses one through four, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So right off the bat, right at the beginning of this psalm, right to begin everything that has transpired, notice what he says. <laughs> yes, of course, people have been hurt, but underneath, at the root cause of everything that's transpired is a sin against God. Yes, we know Uriah has died. Yes, we know other things transpired in this story, but at the end of the day, David comes to the ultimate realization, comes to the ultimate point that his sin is first and foremost against God because he's broken commandments against God. So that's where we see here again, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy, blot out. Now again, that idea of blotting out. Now again, as Pastor Steve mentioned, I'm a teacher. I get lots of papers that have been blotted out because someone made a mistake and they're desperately trying to hide their ridiculous answer with the right one, right? We've all been there, right? You've been in school and you've tried to just, maybe you even get a thicker pen. I don't know what you did. I surely did times when I did something stupid and then was trying to hide it. But nevertheless, that's this idea that completely being eradicated, completely being pushed out. And that's what now David is pleading with God to blot out my transgressions, remove them, cover them. He's getting to, and then in verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He is getting now dependent upon these ideas that God must do these particular works. Again, washing and cleansing, these are not mild terms, but something that we desperately need. Again, if you're really cleansing, you're really scrubbing a true cleansing. And then again, verse three, this is what I was saying. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned. So that is 
where he's coming from. This is where he's starting his whole point, his whole emphasis, his whole focus is that, God, I have failed you, and I'm desperate for you to show me mercy, and I'm desperate for you to cleanse me. So, we then have to continue on here and see what he does here in this next chunk, which is, I'm sorry, I lost my spot on my notes. There we go. Uh, Verse 5. And actually, this one sort of stands alone. This is a fun one. But behold, I was brought forth in my iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, again, David is not shy about this. He holds the mirror high for us all to see that sin is the issue, and he has plagued, and has plagued him from the very beginning. See, David doesn't pull punches here. Again, it's his sin from birth that he's been dealing with. The sin issue is not something new. It's not that he has been great, born perfect. No, no, no. He's born a sinner, and this is part of the problem. So, he continues on, verses 6 through 12, I think, is our next major chunk here. So let's take a look here. And it says, Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from Excuse me, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So again, let's back up just a moment first. In 6... God delights in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom. So again, it's God who's teaching, God who is, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead, didn't I? No, I'm good. No, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. So God is teaching David. Here we go. David is not on the path of self-discovery, right? He's dependent on God. He's not trying to dig in deep, trying to focus on himself, trying to look out on on, on just who he is. But again, he's dependent on God teaching him in verse six, that God must do this. But yet again, in verse seven, he is now showing a dependence on God to clean him or purge him with hyssop. But now we see a, a different pattern here. No longer is he just asking God to doing something, but he's also saying, if God, you will, then something. And so we see this here, purge with hyssop, right? Asking God to do this, but then I shall be clean. So again, it's a if-then statement. We have an ultimate reality that if God will purge with hyssop, then he will be clean. We have a before and an after now. And then he says, and wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So again, he's seeing, not only is he asking, pleading with God to do these things, to change him, with, to purify him, to make him right, but he knows, he knows that it will transpire. This is a promise. He understands God is faithful. He knows God is just. He knows God 
is merciful and that if he is dependent on God, God will do what God has said he will do. And so he can have it as a guarantee. I'd say he could take it to the bank, but I, I, the banks in the news today aren't really doing so well. So maybe that's not a great phrase anymore. I don't know. But nevertheless, nevertheless, it's a promise from God that he will do these things. But frankly, I, I see here that the, the building has been coming to verses 10 through 12, a, a crescendo, if you will, in this psalm, uh, a high mark, the, the exclamation point, if you will, where he says this, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Let me pause there before we really hit with 12 because I think 12 hits a lot harder. But again, create. He needs this new heart. He's pleading with God, put a new heart here in me. You need to create it. You need to make it because I can't fix it. Again, this is not some um, self-help. This is not some self-focus. This is not some, you know, way that we can earn or obtain, but rather a dependency on God. And that is exactly what David is unpacking for us here. Even then he gives him renew a right spirit within me. So again, our spirit, my spirit's been messed up. It's been tainted with the sin. Renew it, make it right. And then his major plea, take not your Holy Spirit from me because he understands that it is the spirit of God that makes all of this possible. And so he's pleading with God to not take his spirit from him because he needs the spirit. And then in verse 12, this absolute amazing statement that David makes here, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Oh. Restore to me the joy. Again, I have, David has gone off the deep end. He's had too much into the world. He's, he's gone into sin. And he wants to now have his joy back in the Lord and in the work of the Lord, his salvation in the Lord. He wants that to be his ever-being focus and his ever-being ideology. Everything that is about him is the salvation, the gift of God. That's what he wants to put in his rightful place. So rejoice, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Again, I can't help but think of, this isn't in my notes, I'm, this just popped in my head, but uh, when Jesus is in doing his ministry and he interacts, I can't remember again, drawing a blank on who he's interacting with, but when he says, help me in my unbelief, the same concept I think is being here, uphold me with a willing, give me the desire to not want to go down that path Again, with a different Bathsheba, if you will, a different person. Instead, restore me right to the right path where I ought to be and where I should be and where I should have been all along. And so it's this amazing moment here, but he's not done. He still has a few verses left. And so in verse 13, 
we see this 13 through 19, basically the end here, we'll, we'll um, talk about here in one big chunk. Uh, and then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you do not despise. Do good to Zion, and in your good pleasure, Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in your right sacrifices, in the burnt offerings, and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So again, he has started off emphasizing he is sinful, he is broken, he is in desperate need. He then pulls to God, turns to God, says, please wash me, but he knows it's a promise, it's going to happen if God excuse me, if he asks of God, it will take place. But then because he's now been restored uh, to the joy of salvation, a new heart's been given to him, he then says that he will now teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So now there's a transformation that's taken place in the mind and the heart of David because it's been replaced. He's been made new. He wants to now respond correctly. So deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Basically, he's now wanting to praise God because of what God's done for him. Amen. And uh, isn't that what we just did? Isn't that why we do this? I mean, think about how the parallels are so right in front of us. Yes, of course I want to shout for joy and sing praises because of what God has done, but I might be getting ahead of myself. But nevertheless, that is what David does because he understands what God has done. He now must rejoice. He must now praise God. He must now worship in all ways, including song. And so again, he emphasizes that it's not the sacrifice that are what's necessity or the necessities. Again, obviously we understand it's part of their system, but notice what he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst are those who mourn. Again, we see some similarities in our own New Testament going on here. But it is that idea that those who are broken, those who are dependent, those who need God are those who God take pleasure. That's who God uh, won't despise, as it says, but also that's who God is working with. And so the last two verses, do good in, uh, to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices. So again, once these things are done right, things will be restored, the things will be as they ought to be. And so this is a very impactful psalm. And so let's just take a moment here to, to sort of summarize, if you will. What we have is we have a man, King David. A man, King David, who had 
known God, was with God, was walking with God, who God had done miraculous things through. But in a moment of sin and in a season of sin, he ignores God. And now he understands that apart from God, he can't fix this wrong. Apart from God, he cannot heal himself because he understands, as verse 5 said, that his sin has been ever before him since the womb, that he is born sinful, that he has this problem. And so he begs with God, he pleads with God. Again, notice the verbs that he's asking of God. Blot out transgressions, wash, cleanse sin, purge, Create in me, renew, cast me not, restore. All of these things are not of David. David can't do a single one of these. He is unable. But instead, he is dependent and pleading with God to do this work in his own heart. And leading heavily on God to change and to fix, and to repair, and to restore. And so this is why we can call him a man after God's own heart, not because he achieved some great things. Yes, did he defeat Goliath when no one else would? Did he show courage when everyone else showed fear? Yes. Did he, um, (laughs) is he known for his amazing worship? Yes, right? He danced and shouted aloud when the ark was restored. Yes, but it's not because of these high achieving moments that we call him a man after God's own heart. No, we call him a man after God's own heart because when he failed, which was inevitable because he's a sinner, he turned to God and pleaded with God to show mercy and grace to him. And so it is this that is our model. It is this that we can look to. And so as we've unpacked this psalm, I have to ask you this question. Do you find yourself agreeing with Paul? Or do you find yourself sort of on the opposite side of Paul? Excuse me, Paul. (laughs) David, sorry. I'm about to get to Paul, so forgive me. I couldn't leave Paul out of this. Um, David. Oh, boy. Oh, well. Um, David, so do you find yourself agreeing with David that yes, I, you need God to restore, to blot out, to fix, to renew, to create, or do you go, no, 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 God, I got this. I'll take care of it on my own or some sort of middle ground in between where, okay, God, I'll do a little bit. You do a little bit, right? And all that. No, no, no. Where do you find yourself? You need to be real, need to be honest with yourself. Or again, maybe you've prayed a prayer like this. Maybe you've pleaded with God to wash you and cleanse you when you've fallen, in which case you would be in good company with David. Now, I'm not sure if this sounds familiar to you, but immediately upon reading this psalm, I can't help but jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in which Paul, see there's Paul, I told you I'd bring him up, oh boy. See, my students are a lot more vocal than you guys, and they would have given me such a hard time. So I appreciate you guys being nicer than my high school and junior high students. I'll give you that one. You guys carry yourselves better than high school students. 
Low bar, I know, right? right. <laughs> Sorry, any high school students in the room? No, my students aren't even here today. Oh, well. Um, <clears throat> so, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe is a, is a very strong parallel passage here. Picking up in verse 9, Paul says this. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolater, nor adulterer, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor uh, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now again, let's look at David. David fits many of these just in the incident with Bathsheba. Was he sexually immoral? Yes, He was lusting after someone who wasn't his own wife. And then he actually goes all the way to adultery as it's laid out here. Now, again, did he practice drunkenness? No, but he used drunkenness to try to get out of his situation. So again, you can sort of even tie in drunkenness here. And then obviously swindling. Yeah, he was trying to get Uriah to cover up the incident. This this should, this verse, verse 9 should in verse 10, excuse me, of 1 Corinthians should almost make us go, wait a minute, okay, I know you just explained that it was his heart and all this stuff, but again, now Paul is saying these people can't inherit the kingdom of God. How can they even have a heart after, after God? Right? It seems to be some, some inconsistency, perhaps. However, that's not where Paul leaves his letter. There's a verse 11. And such were were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of your God. And so there we now can see because this was, this was, or this is who we were. Many of us probably also could identify with these things. Were we the unrighteous? Did we practice sexual immorality? Did we practice idolatry? Did we practice adultery? Did we practice thieves or were we thieves or were we greedy or were we drunkards, revilers, swindlers, the homosexual, right? Were some of us in these categories at one point prior to our conviction and our conversion to Christ? Probably. To some degree, many of us probably were, just as Paul said, as such were some of you. But this is the glorious beauty of the gospel message. This is exactly sort of the summary of the gospel message. Is it not that Jesus, God, came, lived a sinless life, right? God took on flesh, lived a sinless life, and then was crucified on our behalf, took our place, bore the punishment, the weight and the sin that was due us, rose three days later, conquering sin and death. This is how we are washed, is it not? Is it not this, is this not the gospel message that we were in sin? We were broken. We were rebellious against God. But then God lived this life, paid for our sins, died on the cross, resurrected, defeating that so that he would make us 
holy. He would make us righteous. Right? Paul would continue on in his second letter to the Corinthians and say this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this, friends, this, brothers and sisters, this is how we too can be people after God's own heart. Not because we live it perfectly, not because at every moment we dot every, I almost said dot every I, but I had that backwards. Yeah, that's right, dot every I, cross every T, sorry. I get confused in my own head sometimes. See, I'm not perfect either, but that's the point. I mean, such as you, where I'm talking to you, but me too. Before I knew Christ, I wasn't. I wasn't living a great life. Before I came to faith, I wasn't living a great life. And even after my conversion, I wasn't perfect. I've made plenty of mistakes. But that's the point. God knows we are sinners. And so we have to then deal with this reality. How do we respond? Will we be like David and turn to God knowing that our full and only hope is in God? That it's only by the work of God, only through his washing, only through his cleansing that we can be made right? Or do we, again, we try to figure out some way to not bother God too much and try to do everything we can and, and make up the difference? No, of course not. We can't. And so if we desire and long to be people, men and women, after God's own heart, we will then be people who reflect this very reality that was laid out here in this psalm, that we will need and depend on God for the restoring of our heart and of our soul. So, I pray and I hope that this has been fruitful for you and I pray that again this will give you things to wrestle through and I pray that we will continue to seek out God every moment for our justification and for our sanctification as we continue to grow uh, so that we too can lean on the, uh, the clear and washing of that it can only be found in Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for all that you do, God. I thank you for your abundant mercy that you show us, God. I thank you for your washing of us. So God, I pray that you will give us a heart that wants to worship you. I pray that you will give us a, a mind and a, and, a, and a heart, Lord, that is seeking after you. So God, be with us today. Wash us, cleanse us, make us new. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.